Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning so grateful and thankful and just blessed to be back here with our sisters in Christ and for the sole purpose of studying uh, your son, the earthly ministry of your son. We rejoice in the fact that the counsel of the Lord stands forever and the thoughts of his heart to all generations. Thank you, Father. We praise you that your word is true. It's right. All of your words, in fact, are true. Every jot and every tittle. Thank you that, you're, that you love righteousness and, and judgment, that you are a just God, a holy God, and that the earth is full of your goodness. We praise you, Father, that your eye is always upon those who fear you with a reverential fear and who place their hope in your mercy. Thank you that you are our help and our shield and a very present help in time of need and that in thee we shall never, ever be ashamed. May we, through this study, Lord, reach higher and deeper plateaus of understanding of just how magnificent a Savior we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And may we exalt his name together forever in this life and in the life to come. Now, thank you, Father, for providing us with this building and with Scott and his great generosity to have us here and and the church people. We thank you for the freedom that we have in this country to assemble together without fear of persecution, to study thy living word, and we thank you for the health that each of us have to the degree that we can be here. We would ask that you bless our time together now by providing us with further knowledge about our Lord, which we can take home with us, which we can meditate upon, and then allow the Holy Spirit to incorporate into our lives as we live in service and in obedience to you. Now I pray that you would hide your servant behind the words and the works of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, again, as I said, this was my review, but let's just put that to the wind. And (laughs) I'll talk about the last few lessons that we looked at, which were 19, 20, 21, and 22 is where we stopped off last year. Lesson 22 this morning's lesson is lesson 23, if you have your books with you. Lesson number um, 20, let's see, what was lesson 19? Lesson 19 was the nobleman's request That was the healing of the nobleman's son. And then we saw Jesus rejected by his hometown people of Nazareth. And then we went into a look at his supreme authority over all aspects of life with lesson number 20 called Basic Principles of Fishing, where we learned about being fishers of men. And in that lesson, or in that study, the Lord demonstrated to us his omnipotent authority over nature as he caused the disciples' fishing nets to be full of a catch of fish, which was so tremendous and so contrary to the normal conditions for effective fishing that everyone involved knew that it was a supreme miracle. It was a divine, supernatural miracle, and we called it a miracle over nature. Then in Lesson 21, called Deliverance from Demons and Disease, we learned of his omnipotent authority over Satan's realm. Not only does he have authority over nature, over fish, but also over Satan and his whole realm. And remember, he cast a demon from the demoniac in the synagogue in Capernaum. We also learned in that same lesson of his supreme absolute authority over disease as he healed who? Peter's mother-in-law, right, Peter's mother-in-law. She was uh, very gravely... She was in trouble with a great fever, and he healed her. So he showed his authority over demons and over disease. Then, in Lesson 22, 
which is where we closed up the year, we learned of his authority to preach and to uh, purify. And we had our first close-up look at the Lord purifying a victim of leprosy, which is a physical picture, a symbolic picture of what we all look like inside. We all look like a leper does on the outside. That's how we look inside, because we are full of sin. Leprosy is a symbolic picture in the scripture of our sin nature. So that's just a quick review. Let's look now at uh, our outline for this study. If you're open up to Lesson 23, we're going to be talking about Part 1 as we look at the Lord's authority to forgive sin. And this, of course, is a big one. We want to make sure he has authority over sin. Because that's our basic problem, is sin. So we're going to see that he does indeed have authority over sin in part one. And then in part two, hope we'll have time, we're going to look at his authority to save and to um, draw forsaken sinners to himself. And that's what we'll see exemplified as he drew a man named Levi to himself. And Levi's name was changed to what? Matthew. And I really wish we could have spent a whole lesson just on that, the conversion of Levi. Fantastic story. But if I don't get through with it, please read your notes and read whatever you can find on the conversion of Levi because it's, it's a wonderful story, true story. All right, let's look at Christ's authority to forgive sin. And for this, it's found in uh, Mark, Matthew, and Luke. But right now I'm going to read from Mark's account. For time's sake, we're just going to look at Mark. Let's read. Uh, Mark 2, verses 1 to 12, if you look along with me. It says, And again he, speaking of Christ, entered into Capernaum after some days, and it was noised that he was in the house. And straightway many were gathered together, insomuch that there was no room to receive them, no, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. And they came unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. In other words, carried by four. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, too many people, they uncovered the roof where he was, and when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. And let me just tell you that over in Matthew 9, 2, same account, it says that he said, before he said, son, thy, thy sins be forgiven thee, he said, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. All right, verse 6. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why doth this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, why reason ye these things in your hearts? And over in Matthew 9, 4, it says he said to them, Why think ye evil in your hearts? All right, verse 9. Whether is it easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and take up thy bed and walk? But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, he saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, and take up thy bed, and go thy way into thine house. And, what? Immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they, the people, were all amazed, and glorified God, saying, 
we never saw it on this fashion. And they never had. (laughs) All right, after the Lord completed his first great preaching tour, known as his great Galilean preaching tour, he went throughout all the many towns and villages of Galilee, preaching and teaching and healing as many as came to him. We find that in verse 1 here, it says he returned to Capernaum. And Matthew, I didn't read Matthew, but Matthew 9.1 tells us that this was, quote, unquote, his own city. Now, that's interesting. Capernaum was his own city. You see, what happened is it became his own city after his own city rejected him. Nazareth would have been his own city. Now, Capernaum was made the headquarters for his whole Galilean ministry. Now, the house, which it talks about at the end of verse 1, I'm in Mark 2, um, is that probably most likely the house of Peter. All right, it would be the same house where Peter's mother-in-law had been healed. Now, the members of this household, as I said, had already experienced a great blessing when the mother in that family was um, miraculously healed by Jesus, and they were going to now experience another great blessing. They were having a great blessing with just all those people in their house to hear Jesus, the Son of the living God, teach. But they were about to experience another blessing as they would see that man lowered through the roof and and healed of of his paralysis. You see, when you open your home to Jesus Christ, and by the way, in the Greek, the word for house is the word home. You see, Jesus felt at home. There's a difference, isn't there? He felt at home in Peter's house. He was accepted there. He was loved there. Everybody there knew who, you know, acknowledged that he was Lord. So he was at home in Peter's house. Where was he at home in southern Israel? Right. His, his home down in Judah, you know, right now we're up in the northern section called Galilee of Israel. That his home there is Peter's home. But when he goes down into Judah, there's a little town named Bethany, and his home there Mary and Martha's house. And did they experience great blessings? You better believe it. Their brother died, and Jesus brought him back to life. And, of course, many times Mary and Martha would hear the Lord um, teach in their own home. So when you open your home to Christ, you will see his blessings upon you and upon your family. So make sure Jesus is at home in your home. Now, when the people of Capernaum, who had not wanted Jesus to leave them, back in Luke 4.42, remember they tried to coerce him to stay with them? They were kind of selfish in that regard. They didn't want him to go to the rest of Galilee. They wanted him to stay with them and heal all of their sick. Well, when they heard that he was back after this great preaching tour, it quickly became the talk of the town. It says there that it was noised. Don't you like that? (laughs) It was noised that he was in the house, Peter's house. So they were ecstatic, and they couldn't wait to bring to him more of their sick for healing. Now, unfortunately, most of the crowd was more curious than they were converted. There were so many people, we're told, who came from every town. I don't think we see. We see this in Luke's account. If you want to flip over real fast to Luke 5, 17, We are told there that people came from every town of Galilee and Judea and even from the holy city, Jerusalem itself. So was Peter's house crowded? 
It was very, very crowded. I mean, and not only that, um, but we also know that this crowd included Pharisees and doctors of the law who probably came from all over the place, too. You know, the Sanhedrin, the ruling governmental body of, of Israel, had heard about by now. Now Jesus is in his year of open popularity. He's left his year of obscurity. If you look at our general outline at the very beginning of your book, there's an outline. We've, we've gone from his year where not many people knew him to now he's gaining in popularity. And so the Sanhedrin sent this delegation of religious rulers to check him out. So a big delegation of scribes and Pharisees are also in this house. And so there's so many people, we're told, there was no room to receive them, no, not so much as about the door. Uh, now, the um, religious rulers, do you think they came there because they wanted to know about Jesus and to really truthfully hear what he had to say? And they, Obviously, they didn't. They, and, and we see that when we read what they, how they criticize him and when he says that they have evil hearts. So I'm not just speculating. I know for a fact they were not there because they wanted to really, truly learn who he was and had sincere, open motives. They were there because they wanted to investigate his messianic credentials with great prejudice. They had already really made up their minds. They decided, really, that they didn't like him uh, when he cleansed the temple. And they certainly didn't like him because of the fact that he was from Nazareth and... um, and that he didn't really affiliate with them. Who did he affiliate with, as we'll see next, with the publicans and prostitutes and the sinners? He didn't mix and um, match with them. But uh, most likely, the intention of their investigation was to find something to criticize, some flaw in his words or his actions, which they could use as ammunition against him. At any rate, the crowd was so large that the people spilled out into the courtyard and all around the rest of the house, and the Lord took advantage of this situation to do what? To teach the word. He taught the word. It says he taught them. The word was always his priority. The word of God appeals to faith. You know, miracles appeal to flesh. But the word of God appeals to faith. And so it was always his priority. Before he would heal anyone, he would always uh, make sure they heard his words first. Now, in the sovereign plan of God, a paralytic was brought to Jesus. And this situation was going to give him yet another opportunity for him to demonstrate, especially before this delegation of the nation's religious rulers, another opportunity to to show them that he was indeed the long-awaited promised seed of the woman. Back to Genesis 3.15, the, the promised Messiah. And more than that, really the miracle which he would perform would demonstrate that he is not only the Messiah, but that he is God himself. Because who alone can forgive sin? Even the religious rulers say that in verse 7. God only. So he's going to prove that he is both Messiah and God. Now the paralytic of this account was crippled to the degree that he had to be carried flat on a stretcher type of mat. And if you're trying to follow me in the books, you're probably having a hard time. So why don't you just (laughs) look up here? Because I rewrote the lesson last night. (laughs) just to trick you. (laughs) Now, this may suggest that uh, he was a quadriplegic. 
uh, oh, I wish I had time. I'd love to tell you a joke, but I'll never get through this. All right. Uh, it might, and I know not against quadriplegics. It's just that my son one time, my son is ambidextrous. Isn't that the way you pronounce it? He can use his right hand or his left hand. And one time he was flying the plane. He's a pilot. And he was flying a plane, and the guy sitting next to him, you know, he, he saw that Chris had no problem with either hand. He said, ah, oh, I see you're a quadriplegic. He just had the wrong word. <laughs> anyway, I told the joke even though I wasn't going to. Uh, some have suggested, and that's just speculation, but, you know, he was flat. He couldn't do anything, so perhaps he was paralyzed all over his body. Some have even suggested that maybe even his voice box was paralyzed because of the fact that he never said a word. And that, again, is just speculation. But Luke, the physician, gave us a word that indicates to us, and that's over in Luke's account of this, he gave us a Greek medical term to tell us that this man's paralysis was the result of a disease to his nervous system. So it wasn't the result of an accident of any kind. It was because of a disease in his nervous system. Now, when the friends of the paralytic, and there were at least how many of them we know? Four. There could have been more. But we know he had at least four friends that accompanied him to Peter's house to see Jesus because one on each corner of the um, stretcher were carrying him. When they arrived at Peter's house, they soon found that it was impossible for them to get in with the paralytic you know, on his stretcher through the front door. Nobody, apparently, in that big crowd would move or nobody could move. Have you ever been in a crowd where you couldn't move if you wanted to? <clears throat> so maybe they couldn't move to let them in. But fortunately for the paralytic, he had true blue friends. These guys are great. I love his friends. They were not only selfless, because I don't know how far they came with him, but it does tell us people came from all over Judea and Galilee, so maybe they came miles and miles. I don't know. Or maybe just down the street, but whatever. They were selfless to think of him and to bring him, carry him there, and they were sacrificial to do all this hard work for their friend. But they were also, and this is the best part, persistent. They were persistent. You know, we may have trouble getting some of our friends and some of our loved ones to Jesus Christ. The usual way, you know, the regular way, which, so to speak, is through the door. Through the front door, perhaps, of the church or, you know, the front door to an evangelistic meeting or whatever. And so there may be times when we, just like the paralytic's friends, need to put on our thinking caps and be creative. You know, we need to put on our creative thinking caps when it comes sometimes to getting our loved ones, our unsaved loved ones, to, uh, to, to hear the gospel message. Bring them here. We, the more the merrier. Uh, all right, so much for that. First of all, um, I was going to tell you more great things about these four friends. First of all, they had the right faith. They had right faith. Not only were they persistent and innovative and persistent, but they had right faith in that. They believed that Jesus had the power to heal their friend. You know, he, he to them, unlike many liberal theologians, to them, Jesus was no weakling. To these men, Jesus could do the impossible. They thoroughly believed that, and they were right. You see, it was their belief in him which motivated their service. Why else would they have carried that friend of theirs all that way, climbed up on the roof, taken off the tiles, and lowered him in? It was because of their faith in Christ. Faith in Christ is the best motivator of all Christian service. 
You know, there, there might be many people who will boast about their faith in Jesus Christ, but the true test is their service for him. You can test a person's faith by way of their service. True faith will produce service for Jesus Christ. Now, secondly, these friends did what they could. They did what they could. They themselves could not heal their friend, right? But they could take him to the one who could. They could carry a stretcher with him on it. They could climb onto the roof of Peter's house, remove the tile slabs, and then carefully lower him down into the home. Many tasks which are important in God's service or in God's mind are not necessarily viewed as being important to men, right? I mean, to carry one corner on a stretcher wouldn't seem very important to men. But to God, he has a completely different perspective of things like this. If these four men had not each individually performed their humble deed, their friend would never have been forgiven of his sins by Christ, nor would he ever have been healed of his terrible affliction. And Christ himself would not have had this opportunity to reveal his glory and his character, his person as God and his, his power. And this story would not be part of the eternal word of God. We wouldn't be here this morning talking about it if each one of those men had not done their own humble part in carrying their one corner. So even though carrying the corner of a stretcher may not seem like an important enough job for many people, um, yet unless a man was at each of those corners, the paralytic would not have gotten to Jesus. And, you know, that's another lesson for us because... A third commendable factor about these men is that they had to cooperate together. It took four of them to carry that stretcher. If they had not worked together, then the paralytic, again, would not have gotten to Christ. If we can't work together in the Lord's work as a body should, then we won't get much done. You know, that's why if there's problems in a local church and there's division, you don't see that church accomplishing much for the Lord. Got to work together as a body. Paul said we are laborers together with God. So don't be a dissident. You know, don't be one of those kind of people who won't work together with others in the local body, the body of Christ. Don't go your own way and do your own thing and not get involved with others in the service of Christ. This will not help his cause and it will not help the church you know, and, and it will not bring people to Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. So these men were great examples to us in numerous ways. The four friends of the paralytic then, taking the, their friend, decided that they, since they couldn't get in through the front door, they decided that what they would do was climb up to the roof of the house and then lower their friend uh, through a hole of their making. Now, when you read that, some people say, oh, my this isn't very nice. I wouldn't, you know, if I was Peter, I wouldn't be very happy about people climbing up on, on my roof and making a big hole in it that, you know, the rain would come down and later on I'd have to spend money to fix. Um, but that's another reason why we have to understand that the roofs of first century Israel homes were composed of, oftentimes composed of thin three-foot slabs of limestone, which Luke actually refers to as tiles. If you look over at Luke 5.19, you'll see they were called tiles. And these were laid on the homes, the, the 
top of the homes in an arch slab kind of a technique. So it made it very easy to remove the slabs, and they could be, you know, they could be set to the side and then very easily replaced without doing any damage to the house itself. So make sure you understand that. They weren't destructive kind of guys. And uh, this seems to be what happened in our story. By merely lifting up some of those roof tiles, the paralytic's friends were then able to lower him. And here again, they had to cooperate together. Can you imagine if one side lowered him more, he'd fall right off of the mat. So they had to lower him very carefully with his couch, it says in Luke 5.19, with his couch into the midst right before Jesus. Also, if you're thinking, well, how did they get to the top of the roof? If you remember in our study last year, I had a picture up here to show you how they had either ladders or stairways that went to the top of the, on the side of the home that would take all the people of the house up to the rooftop. The rooftops were flat, and people spent a lot of their um, lives up on their rooftops. So they wouldn't have to have gone out and found a ladder, and it wouldn't have been a difficult thing. They could just climb the stairs on the side of the house. On their rooftops, people often slept at night when it was too stuffy in the home below. They would eat meals up there. They could talk from rooftop to rooftop with their neighbors. They dried their fruit up there. They, they hung their clothes up there. They spent a lot of time on the rooftop. Now, the gospel writers tell us that when Jesus saw their faith, he said unto him, the paralytic, be of good cheer. Now, this is how it's written over in Matthew 9, 2. He said, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee. The words, be of good cheer, then, were the very first words spoken by Jesus to the paralytic. And this comforting statement of cheer referred specifically to what? The forgiveness of his sins. This would tell us that the paralytic himself was obviously burdened with his own sins. Jesus is saying, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven. The man was burdened about his sins. Now, forgiveness of sins, I've got news for you. Forgiveness of sins will always bring with it good cheer. It's a wonderful thing to know that your sins are forgiven and not to have to be bent over with them. And just the heavy burden and the guilt that you have knowing that you're a sinful person and, and that you're, there's nothing you can do about it because none of us can save ourselves. But to have those sins forgiven and rolled off your back, that's a cheerful situation. So he said, be of good cheer. Forgiveness of sins will always bring with it good cheer. And this is true even if our physical afflictions are not cured. Are they always cured? No. But can you still have good cheer regardless if you know that your sins are forgiven? Absolutely. Being right with God will bring us joy and good cheer regardless of what we may have to suffer physically in this world. It says in Psalm 32, 1-2, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity. Now, it's interesting to notice that it says the Lord saw the faith of the paralytic and his friends. Because this not only tells us that he can read the heart. Can he see right into your heart? Yeah, he saw their faith. It tells us he can not only read the heart, but it serves to stand really as a contrast to who else was there. 
the unbelieving, cold-hearted scribes and Pharisees. And as I said, in, in Matthew 9, 4, he actually tells them that they have evil hearts. So there's a contrast there. It's also interesting to notice the order in which Christ worked here. First, he dealt with the spiritual problem. First of all, he forgave the sin, and then what did he do? Then he worked with the physical problem. Then he said, arise. After he said, your sins are forgiven, then he said, arise, take up your bed. The spiritual is always more important than the physical. There's little hope in all the physical healings of the world. I mean, just imagine if every sick person in the whole world was just right now healed. That'd be great, wonderful. But ultimately, it wouldn't make any difference, would it? Because it is appointed unto men once to die, and then the judgment. So all of the physical healings in the world would make no difference if there was no cure for the disease of sin. What shall it profit a man... If he gained the whole world or his whole health or gained back a whole body, you know, if he shall lose his own soul. It is wrong for a church or a mission organization or a Christian rescue mission, etc., etc., to put more emphasis, a lot more emphasis on healing the physical than on healing the spiritual. Now, both are good. No doubt about it. Both are good, but the priority is definitely the spiritual. Now, because the prevalent teaching in Israel at this time was that suffering and afflictions were always evidence of God's divine chastening for sin. Remember, we see this. We haven't gotten there yet, but in John chapter 9, even the disciples had this idea. This was the, the main way of thinking in Israel. Who, who caused this man's blindness? You know, the man that was born blind? Did he sin in his mother's womb, or did his parents sin? I mean, obviously he's blind because of somebody's sin. That was the prevalent teaching even back in Job's days. You know, Job's wonderful friends came to him and said, obviously you're suffering because you've sinned. You're a, you're a sinner. So, And we know ultimately that all disease is a result of sin, but we're talking about direct result of, of sin. That was the main thinking of that time. So the paralytic himself would have believed, you see, that his suffering, his paralysis, was a direct result of his own sin. So his greatest concern would have been his need for forgiveness. And Jesus obviously knew this burden of the man's soul, which again is why he said, be of good cheer. Thy sins are forgiven. If it would therefore seem that the man's affliction in this case was a direct result of his sin. Now, see, that's not always the case. Like with the man born blind, it wasn't because he sinned in his mother's womb, <laughs> and it wasn't because his parents had sinned. Now, they had, but the direct result of his blindness was why? So that God could be glorified. But in this case, with the paralytic it was his paralysis was a direct result of his sin or at least that's how it would seem but whether or not that is true in this situation I would say it is but the fact of the matter is that the man was indeed no matter how you look at it he was a sinner in need of forgiveness just as all of us are sinners for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God there's none righteous no not one we're all in need of forgiveness 
So this man's greatest need was in the spiritual realm. And just like him, you know, if you think about it, just like him, we are all paralytics when it comes to saving ourselves. What can we do to save ourselves? We're we're just really like him. We can do absolutely nothing to save ourselves. There he was laying there flat, couldn't even speak, it looks like. Couldn't do a thing, couldn't even lift a finger, couldn't say a word. Um, And that's exactly the condition we are in. We have to be like him. We have to come to the point where in great humility, do you think that was a humbling thing for him to be able to do nothing, to be carried there by friends and then lowered through the roof in front of all those spectators and just laying there right at the feet of this man? That's a very humbling thing. But that's where you and I need to get to be forgiven of our sins. We have to be totally humble, have poverty of spirit, and know that apart from Christ, we can do Nothing. You know, we're all paralyzed, really. We're, we're either paralyzed by fear. We're paralyzed by indifference, apathy. A lot of people out there, you know, you try to talk to them about, the, about Jesus or salvation. They're they just indifferent. They might not get mad at you, but they're just totally apathetic. They're being fed so much with the world that they don't have an appetite for those things. So they're paralyzed. They're paralyzed by, um, by indifference. Some people are paralyzed by anger. Some people are paralyzed by, you name it, you know, materialism. All kinds of ways that we're paralyzed. But we have to just really be like this paralytic, knowing that we're helpless, and we must come before the feet of the Lord Jesus and depend on him totally, you know, depend on his compassion, his mercy, and his love toward us, and his power to save us. And he will when we come to him in that fashion. Later on this year, we're going to study the Sermon on the Mount. I wish you could just jump these five lessons and get right into it because that's what I've been studying all summer, and I'm so excited about it. But every time we study the Sermon on the Mount, every lesson we're going to be talking about poverty of spirit, poverty of spirit, humility. That's where it all comes back to. Well, when the Lord said, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee, oh, I can't believe it, the greatest miracle of all time was instantly performed. A holy God forgave the sins of an unholy man. That's the greatest miracle that can ever take place. And by the way, this is the seventh miracle in our life of Christ study. Seven is the number of perfection and completion. And here, sins were forgiven. That's the, that's the greatest, most complete, perfect of all. The greatest miracle of all. Although it would cost the Lord his own life at a very, very painful cost... On an old wooden cross, cross, yet the Lord Jesus gave the paralytic an absolutely free and gracious gift. It was the one thing that the man needed above all else. He gave him forgiveness of his sin and at the same time eternal life. And that is the greatest miracle of all. The miracle of the new birth. And if you have not experienced that miracle, oh please don't leave here today without coming and talking to us and just finding out how you just come to the Lord in utter humility, recognizing the fact that you are a sinner and that there is nothing you can do to save yourself. It's not by good works, nothing we can do to earn our salvation. We just have to be like the paralytic at his feet and say, Lord, save me, and he will. But don't leave here without knowing for sure that you are saved, please. Now, when the scribes and the Pharisees heard Jesus' words of forgiveness of the man's sins, they immediately, they were incensed, okay? Immediately, now they didn't say these words out loud, but in their hearts and minds, what did they accuse him of? 
blasphemy. Mark says that they reasoned in their hearts, why doth this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? You say, see, they understood that he was claiming prerogatives that belong to God alone. He was intruding on a divine right. You know, who is he to say that he could forgive sins? They actually understood more than many liberal theologians who say that Jesus never claimed to be God. They understood he was claiming to be God. He certainly was. He was claiming here to be equal with God, to say to this man, your sins are forgiven. To the Jews, this was blasphemy. And it, it, and the only reason it was blasphemy is because they didn't believe in their hearts that he could possibly be God. It really wasn't blasphemy because he really is God. But this to them, because they would not believe, not because they could not believe, but they would not believe, so... Blasphemy was punishable by being stoned to death, and then your body would be taken and hung on a tree until it decayed and birds and it was just nasty, awful, and, and shamed, and then it would be buried in an in a obscure, shameful way. Just dig a hole in the ground, throw it in. That was the punishment for blasphemy. Another reason the religious rulers resented the Lord's claim to have forgiven the man's sins was because They did not think it was right or possible for a person to be forgiven simply because he or she asked to be forgiven. And uh, actually, in this case, the paralytic didn't even ask to be forgiven, did he? The Lord simply knew that it was the man's most dearest desire. But according to this uh, prevalent thinking in Israel, forgiveness of sin could never be asked for. It could only be earned by good works. And then you never quite knew if you did enough good works to earn the forgiveness. So, at any rate, the religious rulers were very upset. They spend the whole time in the Gospels being very upset, don't they? Uh, Many of Israel's spiritual rulers by this time, now remember, those of you who haven't been with us, were um, into the second year of the Lord's three years of public ministry. So by this time, many of the religious rulers had already witnessed firsthand some of the Lord's miracles. And they had definitely heard about many of them from numerous witnesses. You know, even if they had never seen one themselves, they had heard from many witnesses and they had heard heard the testimonies from many people who had been healed in one way or another by Jesus. Because by this time, he has healed multitudes of people. So, um, and actually, they also had, uh, you know, all of these things gave evidence of his messianic credentials. Yeah, and they had the scripture. They could have backed up everything he did with the Old Testament scripture, and they could have clearly seen who he was and that he was indeed who he claimed to be. Yet, rather than falling before him and seeking forgiveness for their own sins and their own hardness of hearts, these proud rulers just grew deeper and deeper in their hatred and in their jealousy of Jesus Christ. And really, a lot of it goes back to jealousy. He was gaining in popularity, and they did not like that at all. Again, because he can read men's hearts like an open book, therefore he knew what they were thinking. He looked at them, and he said this. This is Matthew 9, 4. Wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? You know, an evil heart. I would never want the Lord to look at me and say that I had an evil heart. Oh, please, I probably do at times, but 
Uh, evil heart is a heart which is turned from God. An evil heart is one that plots against God. And that's what he's accusing them here. He not only knew their thoughts, but he knew why they were thinking them. It was because of their own willful and evil rebellion against God himself, you see, that they were thinking evil of his son. We'll hear this later on in, in one of the Lord's sermons when he's actually telling them that if they had truly known and loved God, then they would truly know and love him because they would see God in him. But the reason they were against him and had evil in their hearts about him is because they really didn't know God. And they were really in rebellion against God. Uh, if they loved God's word, they would have known if they truly loved God's word, they would have known how the credentials, the works, and the words of Christ himself fulfilled scripture. And that would have given them more than adequate testimony as to who he was. Well, Christ, the master of asking questions, which could penetrate right to the core of an issue, then asked the second question of the religious rulers. He said, he asked this in Matthew 9, 5, for whether is easier to say, let me read that differently. For whether is easier to say thy sins be forgiven thee or to say arise and walk? Now the obvious answer did not need to be spoken because everyone knows that it's easier to say something. You know, you could say to someone that his sins are forgiven than it is to say get up and walk and have that person actually perform. You know, telling someone that his sins are forgiven, like I could say that to anybody in here. I could just look at you and say your sins are forgiven because that requires no outward evidence that the sins were indeed forgiven. On the other hand, telling somebody who cannot move, totally paralyzed, to get up and walk takes a physical demonstration to prove that the one giving the command is not an imposter. In other words, it is much easier to make a claim that cannot be demonstrated than it is to give a command which must be verified with a demonstration. Therefore, the Lord said to his critics, and this you'll see in verse 6 of Matthew 9. Oh, it's also in Mark 10, verse 10. Um, he says, 2.10, excuse me. He says, but that ye may know that the Son of Man, what does he call himself? That's a messianic title, so he's telling them, I am the Messiah. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. Then saith he to the sick of the palsy, arise, take up thy bed, and go unto thine house. And the fact that the man then immediately... Not, you know, a slow healing process, but immediately rose up before them, took up that which he laid on, which means, you know, he rolled it up, and departed to his own house. Notice he obeyed. He was better than the leper. If you remember the leper last year, he didn't do what the Lord told him. Uh, but, the, but the paralytic did. He went to his own house. Uh, but it, the fact that he did this gave irrefutable proof that Christ could and did forgive sin, and therefore he is indeed God. And uh, this was even more, if you think about it, this was even more an, an action of proof to these scribes and Pharisees because they fully believed, you see, that all sicknesses and all handicaps and all afflictions were the direct result of man's sin. So the paralytic's healing forcibly 
established the fact that Christ had indeed forgiven the man's sins. If, he, if the man's sins hadn't been forgiven, then according to their own teaching, the man couldn't have arisen. You see? And you'll notice that they don't say a word. Once again, these critics are totally silenced. They had nothing they could say to refute Jesus' claim to have forgiven sins. I'm not going to get to Matthew, but let me just finish at least the paralytic here. They don't say another word about his blasphemy because he had truly just proven his deity. However, their silence does not mean that they surrendered to him as their Lord and Savior. Quite the contrary, they really just hated him even more because, once again, he had the power to make them speechless, which embarrassed them publicly. Now, Mark tells us that following this miracle, the people were all amazed, and they did what? They glorified God, saying, we never saw it on this fashion. That's what Mark says. Luke says this. He says they were all amazed and glorified God and were filled with fear, saying, we have seen strange things today. And then Matthew tells us that when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, which had given such power unto men. Now, the multitude's response here was a whole lot better than the scribes and Pharisees, right? You have to agree with that. It was a lot better. It, and it was good because they rightly glorified God. But you know what? It wasn't good enough. Their response was not good enough because it says they glorified God because he had given such power unto men. They still thought of Jesus as a mere man. Oh, he was an extraordinary and a godly man, you know, one who had been entrusted by God himself with some amazing powers, and they were moved to, to awe and, and, and even a fear and, and awe, um, respect for him, but not to faith in him as their Lord. They put him on a pedestal, but they didn't fall at his feet. And this is in general. I'm sure there were some people definitely that day the, the members of Peter's household, the disciples, and some other people probably, yes, indeed, were saved that day. But in general, the people of Capernaum saw, uh, you know, some of the most fantastic miracles. And they heard so much more of the dynamic, um, powerful preaching of the Son of God than any other people who had ever lived. The Capernaumites were very, very, very privileged. But to whom much is given, <laughs> much is required. Yet, for the most part, they remained dead in their sins. Most of the Capernaumites returned to their regular lifestyles and their same religious practices after he left their midst. You know, once he was dead and crucified and out of the picture, they went right back to their own lifestyles. He hadn't made, he was interesting for a while. It was a thrill for a while. Some people got healed for a while. Of course, they eventually would die. But very few people were changed from the inside out because of him. There was, however, one man, a publican, a tax collector, who was not only changed from the inside out, but he was willing to forsake all and follow the Lord Jesus. And that we'll have to save for next week. Father God, thank you for the patience of your people. Thank you, Lord, for this year that we have ahead of us and all the many wonderful things you're going to teach us. And Lord, I know I don't want to keep the ladies any longer, but 
Help us each to know that apart from you, we can do nothing. And if there is one here, Lord, who has not seen her spiritual paralysis, I pray that she would take care of that matter today by just saying, Lord Jesus, save me. I'm a sinner and I am in desperate need of your forgiveness. Save me, Lord. Come into my life and let me spend eternity with you. We love you, Jesus. Help each of us to be a witness for you in this coming week. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen.